Welcome to Resilience Radio, Crushing the Tough Stuff with Kim Addis. Brought to you by Frame of Mind Coaching, transforming your world. So what I love most about the Frame of Mind Coaching system is that um, it really goes deep and it gets to the crux of uh, your belief system and things that might be holding you back from taking action or moving forward. So I came to Frame of Mind Coaching about five years ago and I would have to say that the community of people that I am now involved with is the most invaluable piece of the entire experience. Frame of Mind Coaching has changed my life in every facet. My personal life with my kids, with my wife, my marriage has exponentially changed. Frame of Mind Coaching was such a transformational experience. That's definitely one word I would describe it as. And now, here's your host and the founder of Frame of Mind Coaching, Kim Addis. Welcome. This is Kim Addis from Frame of Mind Coaching, and I am the host of Resilience Radio, where my guests are professionals who are experts at crushing the tough stuff Today, my guest is Lisa Peterson. Lisa Peterson is also a podcast host, but she has become a good friend of mine ever since I was on her podcast, oh, I don't know, a few years ago. Lisa, are you with me? Yes, I'm so happy to be here, Kim. Welcome, welcome. So I was telling you earlier that I saw you in my calendar, and I'm like, oh, Lisa, I got excited. And then in the back of my head, I said, I wonder why we're having a podcast together. This is really focused on people who have had a tough time in life. Is there something about Lisa I don't know? And it turns out there really is. (laughs) There's a lot of tough times. Doesn't everybody have tough times? Well, some people have tough times and then some people have big tough times. And uh, I would say that uh, you're in the big tough time category. I would agree with you, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. Right. So before we get into that, just tell people, where do you live? What do you do? How did you and I connect? Just fill us in. Yeah. So I live in Sedona, Arizona, woo-woo capital of the world, perhaps. (laughs) And I'm a life coach for entrepreneurs. I like to focus on the mind and money in particular. So my clients are men and women from around the world who are interested in improving their relationship with money, but it goes so far beyond that, as you can imagine. So relationship with money, and you're making it sound like it's a marriage or like a friendship. What, What do you mean relationship with money? It is exactly like that. It's the relationship that oftentimes people never talk about. They don't realize that it is almost like a relationship that we have with our partner. Uh, Going back to when we were quite young, we began this relationship before the age of seven. In fact, science and, and psychological surveys say that our relationship with money was actually formed before the age of seven. Wow. So it it carries through our life. It's, it's just like another partner. And I've come to learn that when we look at that experience, like a relationship, it helps us to improve it substantially. So I help people do that. So give me an example of an unhealthy relationship with money. Because when you went, I'll tell you, as you were talking, it's kind of like a marriage. I'm like, okay, so if it's kind of like a marriage, I wouldn't want to give it away, right? Because that would be like cheating on, on, on my money? Like, how does it work? What's an unhealthy relationship and what's a healthy relationship? So 
let's start with a healthy one because that's that's easier to catch on to. A healthy relationship is one where there's complete transparency. You know, you know how you feel about it. You know what your trigger points are. You know what uh, causes you to do strange things and you are able to pay attention to it. You know, I've been in a relationship with my husband for 30 years, so I can draw a lot of parallels there. I know that if I'm in a transparent relationship with him, he knows how I feel about him. I know how he feels about me. It doesn't mean that everything's perfect and rosy, but it does mean that there's open communication in the way that we approach each other. And we know the sensitive things and we know the things that are just going to go smoothly. And it's the same thing going on with money. If we are in avoidance or resistance to aspects of our experiences with money, oftentimes that's where the most problems rise, just like a relationship. Does that make sense? So I need specifics. So when you say open communication, are you saying I hold my dollar bill and I start talking to it? Like what? What What are you talking about? Yes, it it is kind of funny because one of the exercises I have people do, I'll just say, is to talk to or write to money and tell it how you feel about it. So yes, we're we're actually on the same page with what you say. But let's say, let's say the big one, and I think your audience can relate to this one. Oftentimes, we look at money as something that we use to prove our value to the world. Right. That's a problem because we aren't really thinking of it that way. We're just thinking, oh, I need to make some more money. I need to take care of my bills. I need to go on vacation. I want to do fun things. We're thinking about that sort of stuff. But when we shine the spotlight that a lot of the things that we do around money are to prove things to other people, it really starts to open our awareness of our relationship with ourself and the rest of the world. Is that fair? Are you saying that our relationship with money really is a gateway to understanding our own beliefs about ourselves? Most definitely. Now you're talking my language. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, so continue when you talk about transparency, Is it really that money is the subject I need to be transparent with myself about? Yes, wholeheartedly. Yeah, the more transparent you are with it, the greater freedom you're going to have in your life, actually. So I've seen many times, because I've coached many people, that people sometimes have a fear of not having enough money, or there's never enough money, or there's never too much of it, or enough of it, however you want to put it. Is that a theme that you see rise over and over again. Yes, it comes up all the time. You know, I was a financial advisor before I started my coaching practice. And one of the studies that really got my attention was a study by Allianz Life Insurance. And they've done this study over and over again. And what they found was that about 50% of women in North America feel like they're a few bad moves away from destitute poverty, regardless of how much money they have. And why is that? Why do they feel that way? Is there this massive insecurity? Like they're just lucky to have the money? It was a fluke? Like what's what's the thinking behind that? I think it has a lot to do with the culture that we live in that is a it proposes the concept of scarcity, that that there isn't enough to go around. There's and that ultimately we are not enough. And we have to go go back to the proving energy, you know, like that we have to prove ourselves and that that's how we become 
enough. But in reality, it's all backwards. It isn't going to ever come from money that we're going to figure out that we're good enough. It's going to come from our own self-realization and our own acceptance of who we are in all ways. Unfortunately, we've transferred this idea of, of not enough to money and to a whole bunch of other aspects of life. Money's just a really cool tool that I use to help people see that they're living in this way of scarcity that is culturally conditioned. It comes from our consumer-oriented society, right? Buy, buy, buy. We, we have become victims to our own capitalistic a system, if you will, because when you receive messages constantly that if you have this diamond ring, you'll have a better relationship, for example, and that gets perpetuated so much for our whole entire life through the media, through the marketing. And before you know it, we think that it's true when in reality it isn't. So let's talk about something else. You know, you talk about lack. So presumably when you feel a lack, you also are gun shy. You don't want to spend, but what you're saying is it doesn't really matter how much you have. Most people spend more than they have. Is that my understanding? It is true. I would say that again, back to, I think a lot of your audience is going to relate to this. One of the areas that I study a great deal is this situation where particularly for entrepreneurs, because the money is so up and down and all around, we end up not, we may make a lot of money, end up not having a lot to show for it, for example. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about with that? I know exactly what you're talking about. I, and, and just before you go on, I remember early on as I was coaching, and I tend to coach the highly driven population who has a tremendous earning potential and they do earn a lot, I realized how many of them were in deep, deep debt. So you're definitely hitting the nail on the head with, with debt and people living beyond their means. I see it really commonly, especially with entrepreneurs, because the income cycle is so inconsistent. So is your question about like, you know, what can we do with it? What would be most helpful to you? My, my question is, why do, why do high earners, high income earners get themselves into that trap? What is the thinking that gets them into the space where they incur that much debt? It's a great question. There's so many different angles because what I've discovered is that money and our relationship with money is pretty complicated. So I'll think of a few situations that, that come to mind. Um, you know, one of the things that I think I, I shared is recently I've been focused on learning how to do past life regression. And, and this is totally going on off on left field, but I want to share with you why I did that. I was okay. not thinking I was going to go down that path. It felt way outside of my comfort zone. But the work that I do is about diving into people's relationship at a super deep level, meaning being able to almost hypnotize people back to their earliest memories of being a child and the imprints that were created around money. Well, what happened was I did this hundreds and hundreds of times, but many times I would realize that the belief that we were looking for was not actually something they created in a traumatic experience in this life. And it caused me to get really curious about what do we bring into this life with us? Mm -hmm. So when you ask that question about the debt patterns, what I found is sometimes it relates to someone's childhood. And perhaps it, it can be extremes. Like in one situation, there was a lot of emotional deprivation in going on in the home. Somehow the child connected that de deprivation to money. In my case, I did that where I said, 
I don't have enough. And, and if I could have a lot of money, I'll be happy. And so I made my whole entire life the pursuit of money. Mm-hmm. And I avoided debt at all costs because my parents had gotten themselves into a really bad situation with debt. Whereas for other people, they don't have the fear of debt like I did, but there's still the emotional deprivation. So they're earning money and they're there in, in their situation. They may be, be wanting to spend because that's how they think they're going to feel better. Mm-hmm. Now that spending behavior could have something to do with what happened growing up. And it also could be something they came into this life with. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of complicated, but I'm just being really full and open about how just how deep this stuff goes. Wow, very interesting. So I'm going to tell you a story and you tell me if it could have a role at any level in my life today. So when I was about seven, maybe eight years old, and I'm going to that age specifically because you identified seven and you triggered a memory for me. My dad said, go get your money. We're going out. And so I don't know. I took all of eight dollars with me and he took me to the racetrack where you can bet on horses. Now, I don't know how many fathers take their children to the racetrack. And my dad wasn't a gambler. I mean, that's not what he did every weekend. It was like a really random experience. And so we went to the racetrack. He sort of showed me how to bet on horses. And I ended up doubling my money. Man, was I happy. I was super excited. And to this day, I don't know if I actually doubled my money or if he set it up that way, if if that makes any sense. But it kind of left a mark on me and I, I'm not so sure if it left a money mark or a relationship mark, but I'm curious about your thoughts on that one. So the first thing that comes to mind, I mean, fascinating story. And I love hearing these sorts of things because we can dissect them, but how do you feel about gambling? I think it's okay. Like I, I'm not a big gambler, right? So if you spend a little money and have a, it's a, it's a little bit of entertainment um, so if I go, let's say on a cruise and there's a, uh, a casino aboard, I'm okay to take a hundred bucks for the weekend and, and assign it to the slot machine, right? I'm also okay to win and then walk away right away. I don't need to keep losing, you know, I don't need to lose what I earn. So I'm really like, I don't have a, um, a battle with it at all. And I'm not generally a gambler, but sometimes it's a little fun to go and just, you know, I considered entertainment money. Yeah, it's it's great to hear that because I had a feeling you were going to say that, but I'm also getting some sense that the idea of being able to double your money created an imprint that actually showed up later in your ability to become an entrepreneur. Maybe. Taking risks. Maybe, maybe. I mean, uh, my father was an entrepreneur. We have a lot of entrepreneurs in the family. So that probably played a big role too. Also, I'm not the type of person who could work for someone else, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) I understand. So, so yeah, you know, some of the memories are going to be free of trauma. And in that case, you know, if you had lost all your money, you may have had a very different experience. And most of the time I look for the trauma because the trauma is what keeps us back to the question about scarcity. Why do we live that way? I think the trauma keeps us trapped in cycles of scarcity or cycles of lack, whereas the good things are awesome and we don't need to spend any time as coaches, you know, helping a good thing be better. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So I want to go to you. You uh, spoke about your parents and you spoke about the fact that they had debt and that that kind of made you 
they had a difficult financial period and that made you want to have money. Tell me more about your parents. I'm switching gears here. Something big happened in your life related to your parents. Maybe you can share us, share that story with us. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because my dad actually subsidized our family income by dealing drugs and doing a lot of illegal things to obtain money. And that in and of itself was a very interesting journey in my own relationship with money because I lived in fear that when I finally understood how serious it was that he, what, of what he was doing, I lived in fear of the FBI kind of busting down the door and taking my parents away when I was growing up. And how um, old were you when you realized what was going on? Probably about nine when I it, the light bulb went on. That beca- and the reason that happened is my dad's best friend, who was his supplier, went to jail like for t- three years and so, he had children. And that was that was a big wake up call. So his kid, he went to jail, but did you understand what it meant to sell drugs at the age of age of nine years old? I knew it was illegal because of man going to jail. And I, okay. my parents tried to keep it from us, but we figured it out because we knew that the children, the other children who had been affected and that, that kicked in this, I had already had a propensity to fear, but that heightened my fear and really scared me about all the ways that you would go about getting money if you didn't have it. And I think that really shook me up for wanting to actually go to school and get an education and do things that were legal and also have money. So you're nine years old, your, your, your father's best friend goes to jail, but your father continues dealing. Now, was he a drug user or just a drug dealer? Usually they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, they go hand in hand. No, he used and he dealt. Okay. And your mom was in the picture. She knew what was going on. Was she also a user? Not so much. She didn't use like my father did. No. Okay. So I think my dad had an addictive personality. My mom had parents who had addictive personalities. So she avoided that. And you had siblings. One brother. One brother, older or younger? Younger. One younger. So you're the oldest kid in the family and this is happening. So how did the drug use impact you? Hmm. I think that it was more of the fear of not having control over your life. You know, I internalized it at the fact that my father was doing something that could cause us to our whole family to be broken up. And that's the piece that I focused on not being safe. So, but his drug use didn't cause him to behave differently. He wasn't, uh, was he abusive? Was he present? Like, how did he show up as a dad? Um, he was abusive, but not as much to myself as he was to my brother. Uh So I saw it indirectly and he, I think I've always been a very strong person. And my dad knew that he just couldn't get away with, he got what he got away with, with my brother. So I was a bit protected. And you were protected, but were you protective or did you were too young to be a protector at that point? No, I definitely became like the adult in the family from a young age. Yeah. I started taking care of things. I started, I lied about my age when I was, um, 14 and got a job and started working so that I could basically take care of all my financial responsibilities as best I could. 
Wow. Okay. And so you're in this house, your dad is taking drugs and dealing drugs and you're aware of it. Now, did you share that information with anybody when you were that age or was it a big secret? It was a big secret. When I, before I knew it was so serious, I would share it with people when my dad would tell me not to. Um, and, and I didn't, and nothing happened, thankfully. <laughs> but once the guy went to jail, I was like, okay, this is serious. You know, I, I I've got to be careful about this. And I still did things. I mean, I still had access to drugs from a very young age. They, my father was very, um, it was just a bizarre home where it was like, it's all available to you, whatever you want to try. It's better if you try it here than going out and getting it on the street. <laughs> oh, I have children now and it just kills me that that's what I was raised in. So you were a drug user at a young age too? Yeah. And definitely. what kind of drugs are we talking about here? Marijuana and then later cocaine, I think maybe late in high school. Wow. Like if I look at you right now, you're like the epitome of wholesome. <laughs> like this is not computing for me. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's very surreal, but you know me today at 50. I mean, part of part of the reason that, you know, things are the way that they are for me today is that my dad was brutally murdered by his ex-girlfriend and her boyfriend in 1999. And up until that point in life, I had tried my best to keep my life together and sort of have the appearance that everything was fine. But on the inside, I was a total wreck. My childhood had destroyed me. I had tried to commit suicide in college. I was so emotionally deprived, even though I was, had married my college sweetheart, I had a baby, I was a house of cards. And when he was killed, that's when it all collapsed. And I began rebuilding my life and my mind, you know, over this past 20 year period. Okay. So 19, when? 1999? Uh-huh. So how old were you then? I was like 32. Yeah. 32. So 32 years old, you're married, you have a child, your parents got divorced, I'm, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, right out of college. Sorry, right out of college? Mm-hmm. Okay, your parents got divorced and your dad had a girlfriend who had a boyfriend. They had broken up. And so it was okay. his ex-girlfriend and her boyfriend. And the way that my dad worked is he was very years of drug abuse. He was a very, very smart man, but he was manipulative. And that, that was the problem that I had with him. And so when I was in college, after I tried to kill myself, I cut him out of my life and I never really had much contact with him until he was killed. But the reason I didn't want contact with him is he was so manipulative. And what happened was his ex-girlfriend and her boyfriend, something started, letters started going back and forth between them. And my dad would kick in his manipulation. And they later, when the trial went to trial, they said that they were fearing for their lives because of these manipulative letters. And and that gives you an idea of kind of how my dad operated. So So give me an example of the manipulation you experienced before you cut him out of your life. Mm, He had told me that if I ever, I had a history of crashing cars when I was in high school. (laughs) You did? And I did. Yes. I was really good at buying a car and then crashing it within a couple months period. And so as as a graduation present, my father and I had fixed up this MG and 
I went off to college and he told me at some point along the way, if you ever crash this, don't come home. And so I crashed it. And that was kind of the, the time when I went through this really bad period where I realized that that was the way, you know, he just had this power over me that I didn't know what to do with. And finally, I realized that I couldn't, when you have somebody who has these psychotic tendencies that my dad did have and would stop at nothing to control you, then when I tried to kill myself as a result of his words, that's when the light bulb went on that I had to, I had to back away from him because I couldn't be in a healthy relationship with him. So when he said, don't come home, that caused you great fear. I'm just trying to see if I got this totally to the point where was that the, the The trigger that had you wanting to kill yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you tried to kill yourself. Mm -hmm. How did you do that? By going to the store and buying three bottles of Tylenol. And you took Don't them all? Mm-hmm. And how did you not die? <laughs> um, <clears throat> as I was kind of going into a stupor, my roommate come ho- came home and saw the car out front and then came in and she couldn't, she couldn't revive me. Like I was still able to speak a little bit and she called 911. Okay. So you, so go back to the, there's so many questions I have here. (laughs) Um, So you decide that your relationship with your dad isn't particularly healthy. You call it a day and you move on with your life. Uh, For all intents and purposes, you do logistically, but maybe not so much from a psychological or a, uh, an emotional level. Yeah. What ended up happening is a few months after, after that, I went to New York city. It was supposed to just be a first, but I ended up staying for the summer. And when I went to New York city, I didn't know a soul. I lived at the YMCA until I got a job and then I found a place to live and I reinvented who I was in that three month period. And then I went back to college the next year and my life started to change. I met one of my closest friends who I, you know, still am close to today. And within a certain, I don't know, seven or eight months, I met my husband actually. And things just started to change, you know, for the better. But again, it wasn't really until he was killed that I realized I still had a lot of work to do. So you get a call, I'm guessing that says, Hey, your dad was murdered. Yeah. My grandmother, um, his mother and my mom showed up at my house and, it was weird because they didn't just show up together and they're sitting on the couch and I'm like, what's going on? And they sat me down and, and told me what had happened. At that time, they didn't know who had, who had killed him, but they knew it had been very brutal. Okay. So your mom, who was divorced mm-hmm. at that point, was she remarried? No. Okay. And your grandmother, his mother? Yeah. And all of us were estranged from him at that time. And were you estranged from one another? No, no, we were really, we were all really close. It was just, so my, my grandmother, my mom, who hadn't known her parents since she was a teenager, had become close to, to Claire and my brother. So it was just this small family, but we were tight. We just had not been tight with my dad. Okay. And so what was your reaction when you got the news? 
How do you react to something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, I've thought that many times, like what exactly happened? And I, I just think that I had never really saw that coming. And I think the biggest reason it was such a catalyst is I had a great deal of guilt. Like, um, he had recently tried to reach out to me. I had sent him a letter, but I wasn't ready to tell him about my daughter and the letter. When my brother went to get his stuff, the letter was sitting on his desk and it looked like it had been read many times over. And that grief that I felt like it, it just was so horrifying that that was, that was the catalyst. And literally the next day after I got the news, I was working in San Francisco at the time and downtown, I went to a bookstore and when I left with like 15 books, all of the books had death in the title at some level because I became completely consumed by understanding death, which ultimately led me to being interested in studying Buddhism because Buddhism talks a lot about death more than anywhere where else that I could find it. And that began this journey of learning, you know, meditation and mindfulness and, and by understanding death, I, really started to learn how to live. So how did all this impact your relationship with your husband? (laughs) Well, you know, back then I think he was just so supportive of whatever, whatever could be done. But in all fairness, like the person that he met back when I was 20 and the person I've become at 50 is a completely different person. And so our relationship has been through so many different stages, particularly through, you know, my own personal awakening to, to being this person beyond all of that trauma and pain. So he stood by it, but it has not been easy for him to watch me change you know, the way that I have, it, it's, it's been, um, beautiful at one level, but also painful when somebody changes and you're still the same person. And so we've had to really, um, learn how transformation affects relationships to be able to stay together. So that's a good question because you are changing, you're growing, you're becoming, and he, you know, you're not anymore the person he married. Not that you would be after 30 years, but you know, there are changes and then there are changes, right? So, um, how do you deal with that? What are some tricks, some tricks or some pieces of advice that you could offer for people who are on the journey for growth while their partners aren't that interested? Yeah, I get asked this a lot by my clients. And I think that what I've come to terms with is back to that transparency that we were talking about, that I don't know how he is going to feel about things, but I do know that it's very important for him to understand where I'm coming at from, you know, with the changes that are happening in my life. And I think that communication has always been a strong part of our relationship. We're both good at communicating, but we've had to become extra good at communicating. Meaning if I'm not feeling good or he's not feeling good, rather than just dealing with the symptom and fighting about, you know, how we don't feel, how we feel bad. And we're fighting at that level. I'm quick to call attention to, Hey, I noticed, you know, you're not feeling so good. The way you're talking to me isn't, isn't really helpful because I'm not going to be able to communicate very well with you when you're screaming at me. I mean, it's really basic stuff in the beginning. Now it's, it doesn't have, 
it doesn't have to be like that. But I'll tell you, I don't hesitate if my husband's having a bad day and he's treating me in a certain way that does not suit how I wish to be treated, then I'm going to be talking to that more than anything. Lisa, where can people reach you? They can reach me at wealthclinic.com and they can also email me at lpeterson at wealthclinic.com. I love to respond to questions. Someone might be having a question that was spurred by today's conversation. I'm happy to take the time to answer that. So thank you so much, Kim. Thank you for spending this time with me. And until we chat again. So the journaling component of this whole journey has just been paramount. It has allowed me as a client to dump everything that was in my head. It has resonated with me extremely well. And I find this to be a model that is so applicable to so many different people. It really gets to the core of things that might be holding you back. So for me, that's been one of the most profound things uh, and learnings about frame of mind coaching. And my coach really showed me my potential. And, you know, with the journaling in combination with, you know, building this extraordinary relationship, I realized what I have to offer the world. And um, I loved it so much that I'm trained to become a coach myself. You've been listening to Resilience Radio, Crushing the Tough Stuff with Kim Addis. For more information about Frame of Mind Coaching, visit frameofmindcoaching.com.